Hear the word of the Lord. Then, after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem, this time with Barnabas. I took Titus along also. I went in response to a revelation and meeting privately with those esteemed as leaders. I presented to them the gospel that I preach among the Gentiles. I wanted to be sure I was not running and had not been running my race in vain. Yet not even Titus, who was with me, was compelled to be circumcised, even though he was a Greek. This matter arose because some false believers had infiltrated our ranks to spy on the freedom we have in Christ Jesus and to make us slaves. We did not give in to them for a moment, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. As for those who were held in high esteem, whatever they were makes no difference to me. God does not show favoritism. They added nothing to my message. On the contrary, they recognized that I had been entrusted with the task of preaching the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been to the circumcised. For God, who was at work in Peter as an apostle to the circumcised, was also at work in me as an apostle to the Gentiles. James, Cephas, and John, those esteemed as pillars, gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship when they recognized the grace given to me. They agreed that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. All they asked was that we should continue to remember the poor, the very thing I had been eager to do all along. This is the word of the Lord. Thank Thanks be to God. God. Thank you. You may be seated. Well, good morning, Sojourn. Peace be with you. My name is Travis, and I'm one of the pastors here. And uh, today we continue uh, traveling along in the book of Galatians. Galatians chapter 2, um, verses 1 through 10, considering the nature of true unity. Uh, true unity from Galatians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. Um, my children, uh, my wife and I, um, spent some time away for a few days um, near Lake Michigan. Um, my kids are small enough that you can, you can set before them some amount of water and they are occupied for a period of time. So I can fill up a five-gallon bucket of water and put it in the backyard, give them a couple of squirt guns, and they're occupied somewhere between 30 minutes to an hour and a half or whatever. And so if you're going to occupy them for longer than 30 minutes to an hour and a half, you have to increase the amount of water that you place before them. And so I don't exactly know what the ratio is. If you want to know what the ratio is of ounces of water to minutes worth of being occupied. But anyway, I do know that you shove some water in front of them. If you add some sand, then, then they'll be content for quite some time. So, and a content, and a content child is, is a child that makes daddy happy. So, um, I mean, I'm happy even when they're not content, but you know, anyway, um, that did, that wasn't my finest fatherly moment. <laughs> um, so we, we went there, and, uh, and truth be known, I've said this before, the ultimate argument in everything is if you say at some point in time, well, what about the kids, right? That's, that's, how, you, that's how you win all arguments, whether it's about dinner or about politics. All you got to say is, well, what are we going to do for the children? And so truth be known, it was for the kids, but I also wanted to do it as well. And so um, I was a bit selfish in some of my motives. I wanted to really just do two things. I wanted to wanted to do some hiking, and I wanted to see the sunset over Lake Michigan. And that was the only two things I wanted to do. 
um, with the hiking, I spent some time, um, you know, studying a map and trying to figure out what trails I was going to walk um, before the trip. And so I was kind of, you know, mapping things out, so to speak, trying to get some sort of guide to, to where I was going to go. And then the morning came where I was going to get some space and I was going to do, uh, I was going to at least hike. And um, whenever I, I got to my destination, I realized, I realized I forgot two things, bug spray and a map is what I forgot, which when you're hiking near water, there's a collection of, of, of insects, you know what I mean? And so generally walking through the woods is better whenever your body is not the snack of some small thing, you see what I mean? And so I was like, oh man, I forgot my bug spray. Well, and then I get ready to get started and I didn't have my map. And so that, that was a disappointment. Thankfully, I'm a worst case scenario type of person. I assume all things will fail eventually. So the way you shore that up is you have a backup plan and ideally you have a backup plan to the backup plan, okay? Sometimes people think that I'm paranoid or whatever and I'm like, which is true, I am mildly, but it's like, hey, look, you know, you carry around a spare tire, okay? I might carry around four just in case the others go out, but you know, what's the big deal? So something's gonna go wrong. You just gotta be ready for it. So I thankfully had um, a compass on my phone and so the compass was working. And so I was able to navigate through, through the woods to some degree because I had some sort of backup plan. Guided, the compass kind of guided me as I kind of meandered around for a period of time. The other thing I wanted to do is I wanted to see the sunset over Lake Michigan. And specifically, I wanted to be at uh, Michigan City. There's a, a famous lighthouse in Michigan City, and I wanted to uh, see the sunset over it. And so we were able to, kind of the last night we were there uh, to, to do the, the other thing that I wanted. My daughter was asking me, she was like, Dad, what's the, kind of the purpose of a lighthouse? It didn't really make sense to her. And I said, well, you know, the purpose of the lighthouse is to, is to provide, it's like to provide a tool, a guide to the people out on the water to let them know, you know, how close they are to, um, to the shore. It also serves other purposes. It helps them to know what's an area that might be dangerous, that the sailors, uh, the men and women that are on their boats, that they, they need to be mindful of as they, they travel along on their journey. Um, and if you think about it, um, Maps and compasses, lighthouses even, they all, they all serve the same purpose in, in some ways. They serve as a, they serve as a guide. Um, to, to have a map or a compass or even a lighthouse doesn't replace the experience of being in the woods or on the water. Okay? You, you must at some point in time actually get into the woods or on the water if you're going to experience those things. But at the same time, they're a better experience if, if you have some sort of direction, if you have some sort of course that you're trying to move along. And, and the same is true in the Christian life. There is no replacement for the experience of trusting in Jesus Christ and encountering the love of God through him. You must experience that for yourself. If you're not a Christian, I hope that you hear that very, very clearly today. You must encounter Jesus Christ as Lord personally. But with that being said, 
in the Christian life to encounter Jesus Christ means, one, you have some sort of guide on who he is. And, and what is that guide? Well, there's clarity that comes from the scriptures about who Jesus Christ is. He is the Son of God. He, he lived a perfect life and he died a perfect death. Those are truths that guide us along this journey. And after we encounter him by faith, after we experience him, there is a guide. The gospel itself is our guide to, to take us from where we begin to where we end. From beginning to end, the truth of the gospel guides us in the Christian life. And where does it guide us to? The truth of the gospel guides us to experience freedom that God has for us as we are a part of his family by faith. The message of the book of Galatians is that you are free, Christian. You are free from the burden and the guilt of your sins and you are free to follow Jesus Christ as you are. You don't have to add any extra works to the gospel to become a part of God's family. You trust in Jesus Christ. You belong to his family by the adoption of a God who loves you and you belong to that family and now you live freely as God guides you by the Holy Spirit. He guides you to a place of freedom. That is the message of Galatians. And in chapter 1, Paul is dealing with a church that is, that is moving away from the simplicity and the beauty that God loves us and gave his son to live and to die for us, to be raised from the dead for us. They are moving away from this and they are adding, they are adding cultural and religious requirements and saying, in essence, faith in Jesus gets you most of the way there, but now you need to change who you are culturally. And then in chapter 2, he talks about an encounter that he has with other apostles as he is sharing the gospel of God's free grace found in Jesus. He has a conference, an encounter with the apostles, and the discussion that they have, and the unity that results because of the gospel of God's free grace. And so it's with these things in mind. I, I pray that you, that you hear this one point today, and that is the gospel guides our unity. The gospel guides our unity. That's the main point of this message. Now, you might be saying, now, how is it that the gospel guides our unity? Well, I believe there are three ways that the gospel guides our unity. First, the gospel guides our unity by uniting Christians from different cultures. The gospel guides our unity by uniting Christians from other cultures. Second, the gospel guides our unity by protecting Christians, by protecting Christians from false unity. And then third, the gospel guides our unity by freeing Christians to serve God personally. So first, first we have the gospel guides our unity in that it unites Christians from different cultures. Paul, um, in, according to the book of Acts, comes to faith. He is an apostle. To be an apostle of Christ, you must see the resurrected Jesus Christ. And so we have with the earliest apostles, they see this in, in you know, Luke 24 and Acts chapter 1. They see the resurrected Christ, but Paul wasn't there. And so then later, according to Acts chapter 9, Jesus Christ reveals himself to Paul personally on a place um, called the Damascus Road. And Paul eventually will be made a missionary and a church planner and an apostle by Jesus Christ. And, and he begins sharing a message. He begins sharing a unifying message, but it's the unifying message of God's condemnation and judgment. And that is this. 
every person, regardless of your race, class, or gender, has sinned against God. Every person has placed themselves and what they want to do as the most important thing in this world, and they have sinned against God. They have sinned against him in the thoughts that they have thought. They have sinned against him in the words that they have said. They have sinned against him in the, in the actions that they have done. And God's not okay with it. God's wrath awaits such people, and that's everybody. So the bad news of the gospel, the gospel has bad news in it, and that is, in essence, we have sinned, God wrath, God's wrath awaits us. The bad news of the gospel is unifying. It places everybody on an even even playing ground. And the good news of the gospel, because the gospel just simply means good news, the good news is, is that God personally takes the initiative, the responsibility to deal with this problem. And he sends his son, Jesus Christ, into the world to live the life, to think the thoughts that we should have thought, to say the words that we should have said, to, to do the things that we should have done, to live completely perfectly obedient and sinless before God, to die on a cross, to be raised from the dead, and to offer to anybody who will trust in that work to be part of God's family forever by faith. And God will remove his wrath from that person, and they will live with God in a place Jesus describes as eternal joy. And so he, he shares the nature of that message. And, it, and it's, it's democratic in one sense, in that it flattens everybody out. It puts everybody on the same playing field. And people started responding. Some people who were Jewish, like Paul, started responding to it, and they started believing. And some people who were not like Paul, they were, they were not Jewish. They were Gentiles, in that that's every non-Jewish person they started responding as well. And what happened was, is though good things were taking place, it generated debate and conflict among Christians. And so Paul takes it upon himself to meet with other apostles, specifically Peter, James, and John in Jerusalem, to say, this is what I'm preaching, this is what I'm saying, this is what God's doing in our midst. Now let's are we in agreement on this? And what Paul does is he, he actually leads because he believes that everybody, regardless of their race, class, or gender, is if they are, are united by, by faith in Jesus Christ, they are part of the same family. What he does is he actually, whenever he goes to meet with these men, he doesn't actually lead with his words. He doesn't, he doesn't continue the debate. He actually leads with his actions. Look here with me in verses one and two, how Paul does this. Then, after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem. This time with Barnabas, I took Titus along also. I went in response to a revelation and met privately with those who were esteemed as leaders. I presented to them the gospel that I preached among the Gentiles. <clears throat> Did you see there that he takes people along with him? Now, it's common with Paul that he, he often has somebody accompanying him. He, he often um, shares his ministry with other Christians. And two of them are mentioned. One of them is Barnabas and the other one is Titus. Who are these men? Barnabas is a Jewish man. He's the same race as Paul. His, his nickname is Barnabas. It's not his real name. But he got that name because of his, his gifts and his service and his ministry to other Christians. 
Barnabas means the son of encouragement. And that was his spiritual gift. He's, he's involved in encouraging other Christians. The apostles will send him all over the world on missions trips. And one of the things that he does is he meets with younger Christians. And according to Acts chapter 11, he meets with young Christians who are experiencing very intense persecution. And he, he lends them his courage. That's what encouragement means. He lends them his courage. He encourages them to, to pursue the Lord and to continue. And he tells them that, look, these are things that we have to go through, but in the end, we will be in the presence of God. He used his gift, and he was a very influential Christian. He's a very generous Christian, according to Acts chapter 4, but he also used his gift in that he brought Paul along early on. Before Paul is kind of recognized as a man with, with unique gifts and abilities by God, Barnabas... So here's the thing, as we learned from last week as Pastor Jonah preached, that Paul is known as a persecutor of the church. Like, that was his reputation. He was, he was a terrorist. Like, he, he made sure that in the name of the Lord, he, he imprisoned Christians and he said, thanks be to God when they were murdered. And so as you can imagine, if that's your reputation and you come to church, people are going to be a little bit nervous about having you serve on the worship team. You know what I mean? Like, they're going to be a little bit concerned if, if you want to pass bulletins, and that's your reputation. And so what does Barnabas do? Barnabas actually brought Paul along, and he said before the churches, look, I've seen God do a work in this man's life. He's our brother in Christ, and we need to receive him. And that's what happened. The churches received him because of Barnabas' Barnabas's ministry and influence. He was a very influential man, and ethnically, he was Jewish. And then you have Titus. And Titus is, is Greek. He is not Jewish. He doesn't act the same way as these other men. He doesn't participate in the same kind of cultural customs as these men. He was Greek. And Paul is showing, he's showing the unifying effect of the gospel as he brings these men along. His church planning team has a very influential Jewish man and a young Greek man as a part of his team. He displays the unity of the gospel through his actions as he goes to meet with these other apostles. I've said before, um, my father was an American man and my mother is an Egyptian woman. And so my family background is they come from two different cultures and continents. And, and in my immediate home early on, whenever I was growing up, um, Christianity wasn't, wasn't all that important. But but in my extended family, both my grandmothers were very devout believers. And then my dad's sister, my aunt, was a very devout Christian. And these people was and are giants in the faith to me in, in multiple ways. And I, I speak about them often for a variety of reasons. Well, so as I tell the story, Mary and Catherine are the Americans. And I'll just call my Egyptian grandmother my grandma, okay? Because It'll just be harder, and I'm not very good at speaking Arabic, and, uh, and you'll find that out as I go along in the story because it's a part of it. My, Mary and Catherine, because they had my grandmother over, and so they wanted to be hospitable to her. And Midwesterners with some sort of Southern influence, you know what they do whenever they have a guest? They want to make special food to show the guests that they love them, that they care about them, okay? And this is just kind of a typical cultural practice among Midwesterners, Southerners of types. And so, my, so Mary says to me, babe, she always called me babe. She says, babe, tell, ask your grandma if she wants pie. And I was like, well, 
People in desert climates don't eat fruit pies, okay? And I didn't really know how to say it. Again, my Arabic wasn't very good. And I was like, well, Grandma, I'm going to try, but I don't really know how to say this. I'm just going to give it a shot. And so I say to my grandmother, hey, do you want this American uh, fruit thing, food? You know, I was kind of struggling along, and my grandmother said to me, I don't know what you're talking about. Your Arabic's really bad. <laughs> and... <laughs> And I was like, that was another reason why I didn't want to do this, because I just didn't want to get rebuked by her, which was going to happen. And uh, I was like, okay. And then she generally, when she would say, your Arabic's really bad, why don't they teach you Arabic in school? And I'm like, ah, in the middle of Indiana, they don't offer that as an elective. <laughs> but I can't explain that to her, because she's like, you know, first-generation immigrant, and everybody should speak Arabic. You know what I mean? All these Americans speaking this American or whatever, you know, that's the problem. And so I was like, okay, well, so I say to Mary and Catherine, I'm like, yeah, I don't, I, and she doesn't know what pie is. I don't, I don't think she wants any. Well, they got really upset. And, <laughs> and, and so they took matters into their own hands. Now, if you can't speak Arabic or you can't speak English, what you do is you say, what, you say your own language slowly and loudly and you use hand gestures to communicate, okay? And so they kind of smothered her and said, do you want pie? because this is the global sign for pie. <laughs> and then she was like, and she looked at me, she's like, what are they doing? And I was like, oh, they want you to eat that thing. Well, then her kind of Egyptian politeness, because they were just trying to be polite in their culture, then her Egyptian politeness is <laughs> kicked in. Now, in, in, you guys will understand this. Those of you who are Southerners, you know that if somebody offers you a piece of pie, you always refuse it once, Right? You refuse it once, and then somebody said, hey, honey, do you want some pie? Oh, no, I better not. Are you sure? And then after they ask you the second time, it's okay to take something, right? Okay, some of you are laughing because you're like, I do this. Yes, thank you. I appreciate that. But you always take smaller than what you want, right? It's like, well, maybe just a little bit, you know? Just take a little bit. Because to take what you want would be rude, culturally, right? It's not in the Bible, in my grandmother's culture, they also do the refusal, but you have to refuse like three to five times. And you also have to intensify your refusal each time, okay? <laughs> so she started refusing. So in like my grandmother's culture, she, she managed herself pretty well on this one. But it would be like, do you want pie? I don't want your pie. What do you mean you don't want my pie? I, I worked all day to make you this pie. Well, I'm not interested in eating your pie. Well, if you don't eat my pie, I, I'll never forgive you ever again, you know? And then it just goes on and on. It just intensifies, which, you know, as I was thinking about it in preparation of the sermon, I was like, this is why I'm neurotic. Like, this is why I'm crazy. <laughs> I don't know the rules. You know, you've heard me say this before. I'm like, I don't know all the social rules. Like, what culture am I operating in, you know? And so <laughs> here's what they, I don't even know if they ate pie by the end of it. And to some degree, I don't care. But um, I mean, I care, you know what I mean? Anyway, um, <laughs> here's what never happened. Was, was the Americans never became more Egyptian and didn't require it. And my, my Egyptian grandmother never became more American and, and wasn't required to be that either. But here's what did happen over the course of their relationship with one another. When my grandmother Mary passed away, my Egyptian grandmother wept and said she was a good woman and she loved the Lord. Whenever Catherine, who always lived with, with Mary, when she was alone after Mary passed away, my Egyptian grandmother wanted to go visit her because she didn't want her to be alone. They couldn't even speak the same language, but there's something we say here that I think is good, that there's a ministry of presence, just sitting with people. 
And so she would just sit with me. When my Egyptian grandmother passed away, when she was sick, before she passed away, Catherine would visit her and pray for her and tell her in English, not in Arabic, that she loved her. She was praying for her. And she wept when my grandmother passed. They were from different continents and different cultures, and they couldn't communicate to each other in a myriad of ways. But there was something that bound them all together, and that was their common faith in Jesus Christ. There was unity that was found because because they served the same Lord. And, And the reality is, is you don't have to change your culture to be a Christian. You you realize that the gospel is so free that you can be who you are and where you are from and and you you can have all of that and still be that person because God accepts you not based on the fact of whether you will whether you will change your culture or not change your culture, he accepts you based based on the fact that he loves Jesus Christ and you want to belong to his family by faith. True unity is based on grace, not based on race. And that we apply by just giving God thanks. We can give God thanks that that we belong to him regardless of, regardless of our race, class, gender, age, or any of that stuff. Like, if you're rich, you're free to be rich. You don't have to be middle class to be a Christian. Do you realize that? If you're poor, you can be poor. You don't have to become middle class or rich to become a Christian. If you're Caucasian, if you're Latin American, if, if you're African American, or wherever it is that you're from, you can be who you are. God accepts you as you are, regardless of where it is that you come from. And you know what? When you trust in Jesus, you are part of a family of faith that is made up of all kinds of people who share something with you, which is your faith in Jesus, and most likely share really nothing else. All of us are unique individuals, and what binds us together is our common faith in Jesus Christ. And I don't have to be you, and you don't have to be me. We are free to be who we are. And true unity accepts the fact that it is by grace and not by race, not by gender, not by age, not by class. Let's give God thanks for that. Second, the gospel protects us from false unity. So as Paul continues, he talks about this conference. And look here with me at what he says in verses 2 through 5. I wanted to be sure that I was not running or had not run my race in vain. Yet not even Titus, who was with me, was compelled to be circumcised, even though he was a Greek. This matter arose because of some false believers had infiltrated our ranks to spy on the freedom that we have in Christ Jesus and to make us slaves. We did not give into them for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. So when Paul comes and he, he meets with these men, Peter, James, and John, you see that, that there, was a, there was a group that, that got themselves involved in the meeting. Paul calls them, he calls them false brothers. He doesn't, even, he doesn't even acknowledge that they are actually Christians. This is not one of these that, well, this group of people are kind of struggling with something. That's not the way that Paul operates. One of the things that I love about the book of Galatians is the clarity that, that Paul speaks with. And he says, 
these people come along and what they, their motto is not unity by grace, it's unity by race. And what they were saying is, they say, look, we've got a problem here. Titus, <clears throat> Titus and, and all these other Gentiles, they need to add something to faith in Christ to belong to part of God's family. And what they need to add is the, is the cultural practice of circumcision, is a custom that, that um, Luke describes in his gospel. It is the custom of the Jewish people. And Paul says, we didn't submit to that. Paul doesn't submit to false Christians. Paul will submit to weaker Christians. Those are people who are kind of struggling with some sort of cultural practice. And they say, you know, I, re I really, then, and the, what that looks like is, is, you know, I really believe that God wants me to do this. And I'm uncomfortable with giving this up for this period of time. But to some degree, the weaker Christian is kind of concerned about themselves and their own walk with the Lord. But these men were saying, no, all of you need to, to, to be like us. All of you need to, to do these things. And Paul said, we're not going to set the precedent. So it's one of the things that's clear with Paul and terrifying at the same time as he says, your, your actions communicate something about what you believe about God and Jesus Christ. And so he says, we didn't submit to them. Why? Because it would have set a precedent. It would have set a precedent to other Christians that, that Gentile people, all non-Jewish people need to do this in an effort to actually become part of the people of God. And he says, we're not doing that. We're not setting that precedent. We didn't submit to them for a moment. False unity, there's no unity at all. But did you notice that Paul, it's not that Paul with this, Paul has a reputation, rightfully so, as a Christian who is, who is gifted by God in so many ways. He's a visionary, he's a powerful preacher, he's a church planner, he has unusual gifts and abilities intellectually, spiritually, his work ethic is unbelievable. I mean, just all around, he is unique. And yet at the same time, his uniqueness, he, he, doesn't, he doesn't view himself as in, I'm so special, I don't have to submit myself to other Christians. He doesn't view himself as that, that look, because of my gifts and my talents and my abilities, I don't, need, I don't need Peter, James, and John. He treats them with honor and respect. He is indifferent to their reputation, so to speak. He'll say in verse 6, you know, they are esteemed as pillars. They were viewed as leaders. And what they are, in one sense, makes no difference to me. That is, he wasn't concerned about their reputation and their status. But yet, at the same time, he brings himself to work things out with them. He's not this isolated Christian who's just like, well, it's just me and the Lord and I just get to do whatever it is that I want to do and nobody gets to tell me what to do because I'm an American. It's something like that heresy. No, he brings himself to encounter other Christians and they have true unity. And the gospel, that's what the gospel does. It one of the ways that we can apply this is one, to be submissive. One, to be submissive to one another without being starstruck to some degree. You know, one of the things that I've learned about myself is the, is the greatest barrier to community and fellowship and connecting with other Christians is my own idea of the way it should look. You know, if it doesn't look a certain way, then it creates a certain barrier. 
but oh, if it looks a certain way. So maybe, you know, maybe at different times I, I, I was starstruck maybe by some sort of Christian preacher or some sort of leader or something like that. And so I would, I would, wanna, uh, I would wanna put myself always in a good light so that they, they were pleased with me so that, that I would be, you know, part of their, I don't know, entourage. Entourage sounds weird whenever it comes to Christians, right? And Christians don't have entourages, do they? I hope not. Some of you probably have an entourage and you're like, I do. What's the problem? But anyway, <laughs> you see, and so it's, it's false. There's nothing, there's, nothing, there's nothing real about it. There's nothing true about it. It's just my own selfish desires playing themselves out. That's a false unity. There's nothing wrong with appreciating the differences in the gifts and the abilities of another person. But the reality is the Christian life is more than gifts, talents, and abilities. We are submissive to one another, but let's, let's not be starstruck. Let's, let's be willing to, to give God thanks to the person who's, who, who never gets up on stage, who's never a conference speaker, who's, who's never maybe a great musician, but they are faithful all the days of their life. They have something to teach us and they have some ways to bless us. For some of you, for some of you, you need to apply this in becoming a member of a church. It doesn't necessarily mean our church necessarily. Maybe it's one of those things that sojourn the culture or the doctrine or the practices just, they just don't fit for you. Well, here's what I would say is you need to belong somewhere. And, and if, if that's somewhere else, then that's somewhere else. I mean, believe it or not, the gospel advanced before our church was planted. And this is going to blow some of your minds. The gospel will advance after our church moves on. We're not the be all end all. But at the same time, you know this is the church that God wants you at. Will you come here and will you submit yourself? The reality is, is that Christians need other Christians. We need a place where we can be known, where we can submit to leadership, where we can encourage one another to, to continue to follow Christ. The gospel protects us from false unity. And, and something else that we need to learn as I look at this passage is, is that, you know, Every church is going to have big problems. Our church sometimes is going to have big problems. The book of Galatians is a big problem. Paul minces no words. He doesn't, he doesn't do his typical, like, uh, lovely kind of introduction of saying, you know, this is the way I see God working in your life. I'm thankful for you guys. I'm praying for you guys. He just gets into it because it's a big problem. And guess what? Our church is going to have big problems at times. And knowing that will keep us from some sort of false unity and false expectations. And then third, the gospel unites us in that it frees Christians towards personal service. So Paul moves on and he talks some about what this conference looked like and what they come to conclude. Look here with me in verses 7 through 10. On the contrary, they recognized that I had been entrusted with the task of preaching the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been to the circumcised. For God, who was at work in Peter as an apostle to the circumcised, was also at work in me as an apostle to the Gentiles. James, Cephas, and John, 
those esteemed as pillars gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship when they recognized the grace given to me. They agreed that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. All they asked was that we should continue to remember the poor, the very thing that had been eager, I had been eager to do all along. So here, Paul says what started happening was they started talking through what it is that God was doing in their midst. The focus here is on the work of God through what eventually the conversation was through Peter and Paul. And what they started noticing, here's the thing that's unifying about Peter and Paul, um, is they both preached to Jewish people and non-Jewish people, the Gentiles. They both did it. Peter does it in, in Acts chapter 2 to the Jewish people and Acts chapter 10 to Gentile man and his family. So they both share the gospel with different types of people. Uh, and Paul does the same thing. Acts chapter 13, Acts chapter 17, he goes to different groups of people, Jewish, non-Jewish. But what started happening was God started working in a certain way. And God started blessing Peter's ministry to the Jewish people but he started blessing Paul's ministry to the Gentile people. And they said, look, let's look to see what it is that God is doing in our midst. And they said, look, God is doing something. God is doing something unique through Peter with these people. He's doing something unique through Paul with these people. And they were, they were fine with it, okay? It wasn't one of those where they were like, ah, we need to find out what Paul's doing so that we can do more of it because we want to have, we want our church to look this way. No, they said, look, God is doing something. Let's trust that God is doing a work. It's up to God what he does through which person. And so they accepted it. And in fact, they had unity around it. They had unity around their differences and their uniqueness and their strength. But at the same time, it didn't remove any kind of Christian responsibility. Peter, James, and John do say to Paul, we want to make sure that you're serving the poor. And he said, yes, that's the very thing that I want to do. I don't want to neglect the poor, even though the Lord is working through, through my gifts in this way. And so they had a, common, they had a commonality among, uh, among the mission, though they were doing different things. And, and the truth of the matter is, is that, you know, just like I said earlier, like, I don't have to be you and you don't have to be me. The same is true with the way that we serve. Like some Christians are, are better at, at serving with their hands than they are speaking with their mouths. And some Christians are better at speaking with their mouths than they are serving with their hands. And some Christians have some combination of, of both of those things. And, and which one is the one who, who is the important one? And the answer is yes. Like we both have to have it. I mean, one of the things that one of the things that I learned early on in my Christian life, I mean, I just said the yes to every ministry opportunity there was. One of the things that I found was, was, you know what, there's just certain things that I do that frustrate me and everybody else in the church. You know what I mean? It's just like, oh my goodness, keep Travis away from whatever. The organizing events was the, was the big one. It was just one of those where it's like, I struggle with you, Travis, when you plan an event. It's like, you... <laughs> You struggle with me. That means like, I want to choke you is what that really means. That's Christianese for, I just assume you'd be dead. But anyway, that's, that's, you're like, that's not what I mean when I say it. <clears throat> right? And so, well, what do I have to, how, what do I have to come to grips with if, if it's one of those that administration is just not my strongest gift? Well, one of the things I have to come to grips with is that I have some sort of limitations, the other thing that I have to come to grips with is not only do I have limitations, I'm not God. 
and I don't have to be. Does it mean that I don't um, attempt to, to be careful with budgets or responsibilities or organization? Does it remove all responsibility from me and I can just, you know, throw caution to the wind and be ridiculous about details? No, it doesn't mean that. But it, but it means that I need to belong to a place and belong to a people to where I'm honest to say is, look, I need you. I see God working in your life in a certain way. I want to see you use your gifts and, and I want to see you be who it is that God has made you to be. Because guess what? Like, I got into this thing. I didn't get into this thing to, to, um, to be involved in, you know, planning meetings and strategies and budgets and all those things. Are those things bad? No. Do those things have a part in ministry? Absolutely. Why did I get into this thing? Well, I got into this thing because I encountered a man named Jesus Christ, and he saved me. He worked in my life in such a way that I'm not the man that I used to be. I'm not the man that I will be one day. And I really long to be a different man and to be more like Jesus. But I got into this thing because I wanted to see people encounter something like I encountered. And that is there is a God who loves you and he loves you so much that he gave us his one and only son to die for you. And if you'll believe in him, you can be part of God's family forever. And he'll change you. And you'll never be alone again. God will never leave you or forsake you. And I wanted to see people transform like that. And you know what else I wanted to see? I wanted to see other people encounter the joy of being sent out and sharing with other people that same message, that there is a God, he does love you, and he gives his son, Jesus Christ, for you to encounter. But some of that requires me being honest about how it is that God's working in me and through me and where he doesn't seem to work in and through me and letting Christians be Christians so that we together can accomplish this great and wonderful mission of seeing Jesus exalted as the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings. We have unity in the mission that we share. We see that unity in the Word, and we see it in the Lord's Supper. Because you see on the night when Jesus was betrayed, he took one loaf, he broke it, and he says, this is my body broken for you. Take eat of this. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took a cup of wine, and after giving thanks, he says, this cup is the cup of the new covenant sealed by the shedding of my blood. Take, drink of this. Do this in remembrance of me. For every time you eat from this bread and you drink from this cup, you're announcing the Lord's death until he returns. The Lord's Supper is offered to anyone who trusts in Jesus. It is a display of unity in real time. If you are a Christian, I invite you. After I get done praying and the musicians begin playing, there'll be stations throughout the auditorium. Come. Our practice is to tear off a piece of the bread, dip it in juice or wine, whichever one your conscience permits. The wine is marked by a piece of twine. And there will be gluten-free elements to my left and to your right, if that'll serve you. If you're not a Christian, I ask that you respect our tradition. Don't partake in this uh, meal, but I pray that you will take Jesus by faith and become a part of his family forever. Let's pray together.